This morning's reading is from Revelation chapter 3, um, beginning at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. I enjoyed listening to uh, you sing from up here with a, a bit of a stripped down um, band this morning and just singing um, our allegiance to Jesus and reminding ourselves uh, of who he is and because of that, um, who we as his people are. And really, that's, uh, it's appropriate because this morning uh, we again are looking to uh, letters that Jesus wrote to his church from the book of Revelation. It's the, the uh, second to the last letter. Um, We have two more weeks in the series. We're going to end not with looking at a letter, but kind of a recap and looking at uh, Jesus as he describes himself to all of these churches, uh, which I think is is the appropriate way to do that. And so, um, yes, um, Philadelphia, I am restraining myself from not singing the theme song to Fresh Prince of Bel-Air right now. I'm sure you'll be very grateful for that. No one needs to see a white middle-aged man try to rap, and so I will refrain. Um, But we are looking at the church in Philadelphia, and unlike, well, similar to Will Smith, who had trouble in Philadelphia, and uh, his mom then moved him away from there to avoid the trouble and persecution that he was getting on the uh, playground, uh, Jesus actually wants these people to stay in Philadelphia and persevere, See how I made that cultural connection? Man, I am just killing it this morning. Actually, I stole that from somebody else. And he was a black guy, so there you go. I can't even take credit for that. He's way hipper than me. Um, so this is uh, the church in Philadelphia. If we have our map, you can kind of see uh, how we've been getting on here. Uh, we started in Ephesus. Uh, you have Patmos, where John is writing this from, as Jesus is giving uh, John these words to the, to the churches. And this would be kind of the postal route of the time, starting in Ephesus, up to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, now working our way back down, Sardis, and then to Philadelphia. Next week, we'll get to Laodicea. So you can kind of see the geography. This is modern-day Western Turkey um, that we have here. And again, as someone has referred to, my holiday snaps. Um, here's a few pictures of what is Philadelphia. There's actually not much left there to see. It's maybe a, what would be like a small park with just a couple uh, of, of 
structures that are there. I'm not even sure this is actually the church building. Uh, I don't, certainly it wouldn't be. You can see some of the inscriptions uh, that are there, um, some evidence of, of uh, Christian church being there. Um, they're still doing a little bit of excavating, but it's really kind of a park in the middle. And this is, I thought, was a, an interesting picture because what is uh, now modern-day Turkey, um, where the church used to be there, now you have a mosque. And so um, still a needy place, and um, that's one of the main reasons why we're involved in Turkey while we're supporting, going to be supporting a church planter in Istanbul um, doing the work that's there. Um, and so here we have this church, and really the message that we have to this church uh, and the message for us this morning is the loyal Christ is faithful. Jesus is faithful, and he's able to keep us faithful. He's able to keep a loyal church. And because he is faithful to you, he is also able to keep you faithful to him. We can't just assume that you are able to keep yourself from stumbling, that you are able to present yourself blameless before his presence with joy. We need to be rooted and grounded so that when the fierce storms of opposition or suffering come into our lives, we're able to stand like mature oaks of righteousness. And so here this church is being persecuted. They're uh, experiencing opposition, and yet the Bible says we must endure like them to the end. But it never says that we must endure through our willpower. We just kind of grit our teeth and bear it but rather we endure through resilience in his power, as we'll see. And so we're going to learn from the Church of Philadelphia this morning. Um, Just a few things about the context of the church. Um, Persecution is the context that we find uh, this church and therefore this letter. Um, There's tensions that existed between the Jews in the synagogue and the Christians in Philadelphia. We've seen this before in uh, a couple weeks ago, letters where the Christians um, were normally okay with Rome, or Rome was normally okay with Christians as long as they were seen to be kind of under the umbrella of of Judaism. Um, But once they were seen as something other than Judaism or a new religion or a new sect, um, they would be persecuted. And so you have the the Jews essentially exposing them, persecuting them, and then also from the Roman government and just the culture um, at large around them. And despite these challenges, the church in Philadelphia is known for its faithfulness in Jesus. Um, Along with Smyrna, this is the only church uh, of the seven that Jesus doesn't have any criticism of. He doesn't find any fault with them. Um, And with that, then he pledges and promises, um, and he affirms, and he encourages them with several different things. Um, And so we want to hear what he has to say to this church, um, but also than what that means for us. And so we've used the same outline week after week because these letters follow the same pattern. And so we'll jump in and start with this authoritative introduction that Jesus gives, introducing himself in verse seven. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And so Jesus introduces himself again to them that he is the Holy One. And we know that holy is just to be separate. It's to be set apart from. It is to be distinct or different from. And Jesus is holy. He is set apart from anything that is not God, that is not good. He is in a class entirely by himself. He is the creator, not the creature. He is pure. He is undefiled. Hosea 11.9 says this. God says, for I am God and not 
man, the holy one among you. This uh, holy one is, is, is um, often referred to as exclusively Yahweh. It is exclusively God. Isaiah 40, 25. Who then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the holy one. Um, Isaiah alone uses the holy one as a descriptor for God 20 times. Um, and we see a lot of revelation pointing back to the Old Testament with imagery from especially Isaiah. In the Gospels, demons and disciples call Jesus the Holy One of God. So you know when the demons are addressing Jesus as the Holy One, um, that, that that's, that's who he is. Even they understand that he is completely other than not just humanity, but all other created things in the spiritual realm as well. He says then that he is the true one, that he is the faithful one. Jesus is completely dependable. He's totally trustworthy. There's nothing false within him. Everything that Jesus says is true. Every advice, advice isn't the right word, every command that Jesus gives us to follow is good. And it's hard because he's, we're gonna say, he's gonna say some things today that to our kind of modern, Western, postmodern, enlightened kind of minds sounds a bit, oh, that's a little, it grits against us a little bit. And so it's important to remember that Jesus is true, that he is holy, and that where he leads us is to life and goodness and flourishing. And where things seem to not add up or to rub us the wrong way, it is us then who must ask the question, why am I receiving it this way? Why don't I receive this as something that's good? He is holy and true. Together, these are used to describe the sovereign Lord. We see this in Exodus 6. Jesus is the sovereign Lord who does what's right all the time. <laughs> he is morally and consistently dependable. Right? He says, I will be faithful to finish the work that I've started. He's dependable. He's faithful. He's true. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. And then it says that he also has the keys, the key of David. So Jesus declares not only his perfect morality not, and his total reliability, but he also has absolute authority. He is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open, that he has the authority over all these things. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus has said to hold the keys to death and the grave that he has the authority over life and death itself, that it is Jesus, it is God himself who, di who determines who dies, when they die, if they die. Because there were some people, with, with, with the guy was like, why don't you just not die and I'll just bring you up to heaven? I'm about a chariot of fire instead of death. Well, that's pretty cool. Didn't happen very often, but that one guy kind of scored. Jesus, the point is that Jesus is in charge of even death. He's in charge of life. He determines who lives, when they live, how long they live, where they live. And the proof of that is he healed the sick. He just told disease to go away. He raises the dead. He even lays his own life down. Defeats, as he enters death, defeats it, takes the keys of death and hell and raises from the dead. He has the keys. But it said he has the key of David. 
Um, so what does this mean, the key of David? Again, we looked at Isaiah for, clarif- for uh, clarification. Isaiah 22, and this is verse 20 to 22. God rejects a man named Shebna and affirms a servant named Eliakim. Verse 19, it says, I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. And that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkai, and I will clothe him with your robe and I will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. He's quoting from Isaiah. Jesus is the dictator of who gets into the kingdom of God and who doesn't. Not only does he hold the key, we're told in John that he's the door himself. In Revelation 3, now, through John, Jesus says he has the key. And this is important. If you're here this morning and and you're not a, a Christian, you're here exploring these things, we're really glad you're here. You're welcome here. But if you don't get anything else, this is what I want you to hear this morning. Jesus is the key to entering into the kingdom of God. He himself even says that, right? No one enters in. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one God. There's only one way to that God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. He himself dictates the terms of entering the kingdom of God. The good news is that he gives us, and he's giving you this morning an open invitation, that his door is open. That's what the whole cross was for. It was to provide a way for you and I to enter through a door that was never open to us before. Any other way, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, is a dead end. It leads to death. But Jesus flings the door wide open through the cross. Not just to the Jews, but now to all of us, to the rest of humanity, the Gentiles. But with that, he says there will come a time where the door gets shut. Um, I'm going to read from uh, Luke 13. And again, these are harder words, aren't they? This is uh, Luke 13, verse 24. This is, uh, actually, uh, I'll start in verse uh, 23. Someone said to him, that is Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, this is his answer, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has arisen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. The door doesn't stay open forever. There will come a time where the door is shut and it will be too late. But while God gives us breath, His mercy is available to us. He calls us to enter through this open door. He says, strive to enter through the open door. This is Jesus' introduction to who he is. He is the holy one. He is the true one. He is the one who holds the keys. 
And then he goes into the all-knowing evaluation. And here it's all commendation. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What Christ knows. He knows your works, right? He knows our works. He knows your works individually. He knows what we're about. And he says, I know that you have little power. And yet you've kept my word. And yet, in spite of that, you've not denied my name. Jesus here again proclaims that he is intimately acquainted with the conditions that impact his people and the conduct of his people in the midst of those conditions. I know the works that you do. I know the quality of the works that you do. I know the context and conditions affecting the works you do. Jesus knows. He sees. And so if, we have, if we're having a hard time living out our faith in our place of employment, even maybe in amongst your family or your neighbors or in a culture that seems increasingly hostile, Jesus knows all of that. And he told us we shouldn't be surprised by that. And he says, I've set before you an open door. Now, what is this open door that he set before them? There's a couple different options here. I don't think we have to pick and choose. I think they're both applicable. The first one, I think, is an open door of opportunity, of service, to be effective in gospel ministry. And the second one, I think, is what we've talked about, an open door into the kingdom of God, to salvation, the permanence of God's covenant people, his community. So the first one, this open door of service, is the missionary opportunity, the opportunity for them to actually witness to who Jesus actually is. We use this phrase, this phrase is used all throughout the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. Paul says, but I'll stay in Ephesus. Why? For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. God has opened a door for me here for effective gospel ministry, so I'm going to stay in Ephesus. But then he says, and there are many adversaries. <laughs> I love that. Hey, I'm going to stay here. God's clearly working. He's opened the door. Oh, and there's lots of people who aren't happy about that and are going to um, be my adversary. But I'm going to stay anyway. Colossians 4.3, pray for us, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Acts 14.27, 2 Corinthians 2.12, all refer to um, God giving them opportunity for the word to go forward, gospel ministry as an open door. The context for Philadelphia, I think, is important to this as well. Philadelphia was named the gateway to the east, and it was named that because it was such a strategically located um, city, geographically speaking. Um, it was, <coughs> excuse me, um, it was founded to really be a missionary of Greek culture and language. So it, 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 what it was known for was uh, this epicenter, but also moving out east of Greek culture, of Greek language, moving forward. This was this gateway to east. It was this, uh, an important city in the Roman Empire. And some have even surmised that even as Philadelphia had effectively exploited its open door to spread Greek kind of culture and language. So the Church of Philadelphia was being given by God this missionary opportunity to spread the good news of Jesus. So he says, I know your works. You've been effective in walking through the open door of fruitful gospel ministry. But then there's the idea of the open door to salvation, this permanence being brought in permanently into God's covenant community, into the kingdom of God. And in the book of Revelation, the use of open door doesn't really describe missionary activity as much as it describes 
opening the door into the kingdom of God. The holder of the keys in verse 7 grants access to the messianic kingdom. That is, Jesus grants access. The key of David opens access to the kingdom of God, into the people, the covenant people of God. Philadelphia is being afflicted, um, being persecuted by Jewish persecutors. They're being thrown out of the synagogues. They're being harassed for them believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And so the open door that no one could shut is Jesus affirming, listen, I know you're being thrown out of the, the synagogue. I know you're being thrown out of what seems to be the covenant community of God. But it's not. I've actually opened a door to you that none of them are going to be able to shut. It's both salvation and service. And because we are secure in who we are in Christ of our salvation, it should lead to faithful service in Jesus. God is sovereign over salvation. Nothing, nothing that you, even Paul would say, listen, I didn't come with words of eloquence. I, I, I couldn't convince you, but I came in power, not his own power, but the power of the Holy Spirit. God is sovereign over salvation, but he's also sovereign over our opportunities to give witness to who Jesus is. And so that should embolden us in our gospel witness. Because we believe God is sovereign over salvation, that doesn't mean, well, I don't have to do anything. God's going to save who he wants to save. doesn't have anything to do with me. No, God's commanded us as his church to take the message forward. Why? Because we can be confident that he's going to save some. He, Paul, when he's entering into a new city, he said, God has sent me here because God already has people in this city that are his. They just don't know it yet. And that's why God sends us. This open door is not one of their own earning, though. This isn't a deal that Jesus has made. Okay, because you've been faithful, now I'm going to give you opportunities. What's giving them the opportunities is what they've been faithful to. This isn't one of earning an open door, but it's one of the power of the word of Jesus producing an open door. Open door isn't payment for their service and faithfulness, but rather Jesus gives them his word which is living, it's active, it's powerful, it's life-giving, it's opportunity-giving. The power is actually in the word. It's them being faithful to the word, and that word is what is powerful and is creating the opportunities. And that's important because he says, I know that you have little power. <laughs> they didn't have all kinds of power and influence. Um, we want to see Jesus change our communities. We want to see Jesus change our city. And, and we want to use that language, right? We talk about joining God at the renewal of all things. But we also have to be, understand that that will never come to its full fruition until Jesus returns again. So our power to transform a city, we just need to be careful with that language some. It's not our power. It's what Jesus has given us that is powerful. The church of Philadelphia was small, it was unimpressive, it was uninfluential. There's not much even now to see of it today. It's in their weakness. But that's where Jesus operates best, isn't it? Even Paul says, it's in my weakness that Jesus is strong. It's in my weakness that God actually uses me. So that I can't boast in myself, but that Jesus gets all of the glory in that. He tells them, I know the power you have and it isn't much. I know the weakness you have and it's real and you feel it. I know the lack that you have and that's substantial. 
no acceptance, outcast from the people who should be accepting you, no influence, no significance. And yet, in the midst of all of that, you've been faithful. You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. The church had been afflicted, but remained faithful, remained loyal to Jesus. He commends them for not deviating from obedience to him. They didn't detach themselves from identifying with Jesus. They didn't distance themselves from Jesus. They were a loyal, faithful church. And I think there's three keys to that. One, they were faithful in doing gospel work. Second, they were faithful to obey God's word. And then third, they were faithful in being Jesus' witnesses. Faithfulness is the key, and it's the theme in all of these. It doesn't matter whether you're influential. It doesn't matter if you're a big church that has a great reputation. It doesn't matter if you're a little church that no one notices and you don't think is is being influential. Faithfulness is the key. Fruit we leave up to the Lord. We're not in charge of the fruit. We're just in charge of being faithful. We stay connected to the vine. We're just the branches. The vine produces through us. So they were faithful in doing gospel work. They spread gospel culture like Philadelphia spread Greek culture. How do we do that? How are you faithful in gospel work? It's just by being faithful to being the kind of people that God has called us to be. So in your workplace, that means actually just being a good employee, showing up on time, working hard, not not cutting corners, doing your best effort, being respectful to um, who you're subordinate to. Actually being a witness by the way, by the kind of people we are. Not just in what we say, but in deed. We pray for opportunities. We seek those opportunities in prayer. We capitalize on those opportunities and make the most of them. We see opposition as opportunity, just as Paul did in 1 Corinthians. He's like, man, the Lord's opened an opportunity here. I'm going to stay here in Ephesus, and there's lots of adversaries. (laughs) But those adversaries were an opportunity. They weren't an obstacle. How do you actually see opportunities. Um, It's like the salesman um, who was sent to Africa. He was a shoe salesman. And um, there's a couple of them that went. And the first one got there and he's like, oh man, no one here wears shoes. So he's like, oh, forget it. He went back home. He's like, oh, no one there wears shoes. So I'm I'm gonna come back and try somewhere else. And the other shoe salesman got there and he's like, no one here wears shoes. He's like, send a whole truckload of them. Because the opportunity, he's like, no one wears shoes. That means I can, I can sell shoes to every single person here. How do we see what God has put before us? Do we see everything as an obstacle? Do we see everything as an opportunity? How we live, ourselves out, how we live our lives to a watching world increasingly will be part of how we witness, Right? Um, Paul writes to Timothy and, and Timothy, uh, or, sorry, to Titus in Titus chapter two, and this is what he says to the young women in verses four to five. He says, "The young women um, tell them to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled. Be the kind of women, be the kind of daughters and wives that actually make the gospel look good." What does he say then to the younger men? Show yourselves in all respect to be a good model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that can't be condemned. Why? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. 
People may not like the way you think. They may not like the things you believe. But they shouldn't be able to have anything evil to say about the way that you actually live your life. I don't like that guy. I don't like the way he thinks. But man, he's a guy of integrity. He works hard. Loves his family. What does he even say to bond servants? Verses 7 and 8. Bond servants. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God, our Savior. Isn't that incredible? That we, by the way that we live, by the kind of people that we are, get to adorn the gospel. We get to make the gospel look good by the way that we live. They were faithful, secondly, in being Jesus' witnesses. They didn't deny the name of Jesus even when they were outcast, rejected, afflicted. The first thing to go is the explicit reference to the name of Jesus often. When we're embarrassed, we kind of want to kind of couch our faith a little bit. When we want to kind of, you know, move up higher in our spirituality, Jesus, the name of Jesus is usually the first thing to go. Why? Because the term God is pretty general. Like, it can mean whatever you want it to mean. Every other religion uses that term God, right? To refer to their deity. But when you say Jesus, when you say Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the promised one of Yahweh, now we're getting specific. And with that specificity comes all kinds of baggage, if you will. It it, it comes with all the commands of Jesus with it. And so it's easy to jettison Jesus and still kind of be spiritual and talk about God. But Jesus commends this church for not denying his name. And that's important because their main opposition was from people who were denying Jesus' name, who believed in God. The Jews believed in God. They even believed in the same God that the, the, the Christians did. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then it stops. <laughs> they, they reject Jesus. They reject him as the Messiah. They were faithful to his name. And we can be moral, we can be positive, we can be socially woke, whatever it is. And you can do all that without naming the name of Jesus. And so it's important for us, as we, as we think about our worldview as we even explain our worldview, the reason behind that worldview isn't just because, well, we think it makes sense. It does. Uh, we think it's, you know, a good way to live. It is. But it's because of where it comes from. It comes from Jesus himself. Then we move to the appropriate exhortation, how Jesus wants to exhort them. We see this vindication, really. In verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Okay, so that's some heavy language that Jesus is using. Um, And I I want us to just think a little bit... um, Uh, about the the language that Jesus is using here. Jesus is 
just. Jesus understands injustice. He will come and he will right all wrongs. So when he says, when he calls these people the synagogue of Satan, this is the second time he's used this phrase. I want us to understand what that is. These are, he's referring to these ethnic Jews that had rejected Jesus, that had rejected the death and resurrection of Christ, and they were persecuting his believers because of that. So this isn't just like an insult that Jesus is using. He's, he's not like, man, I really hate those people. What's the worst thing I could say about them? This isn't an insult that Jesus is like, oh, I'm just going to call them a synagogue of Satan. He's being very precise with his language and what he's trying to communicate. They were about the same mission that Satan is about. They were about the same things. And he says, he says that they say they're Jews, but they're not. They lie, right? Paul would say the same thing. And as he explains this in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 to 29, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, not by the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. Romans 9, 6 and 7, for, all who are, for, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In John 8, Jesus says this, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. You seek to kill me. This is not what Abraham did. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He says, these people call themselves the people of God, Jews, the chosen people of God. And they might be ethnically of that lineage, but they're no real true Jews. The true Jews expected the Messiah to come. And Jesus came as the Messiah, and they rejected that outright. The Christians who he's addressing here are the ones who actually recognized who Jesus was as the Messiah confessed him as Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And what does he say? He says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Now, this is, this is huge. This idea of bowing down, the Old, Old Testament text predicted Gentiles. So Jesus had promised the Jews, his people, that Gentiles will come and bow down before Israel and Israel's God in the last days. This is Isaiah 45, 14. He says, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other God besides him. Isaiah 49, 23, kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Isaiah 60, 14. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. This was the promise that God had given to his people in the Old Testament. And now we fast forward to the end in Revelation. He's fulfilling that promise. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna still fulfill that promise. 
It's just the people who think they're the people of God are not. They're on the outside. They will be the ones coming to bow down to the true people of God. Those who have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Now, again, it's important here that we see what's actually happening. He calls them a synagogue of Satan. Part of that is because Satan is the real enemy, right? We're told in the scripture, our enemy isn't with flesh and blood. Our ultimate enemy is is our adversary who who seeks to devour you like a lion. And yes, he uses human agency to do that. But he is the real enemy. Now, again, we don't talk a lot about Satan, do we? Satan is this kind of concept to our kind of modern, enlightened, postmodern mindset uh, that just seems kind of silly and foolish. We like things that are tangible, things that can be proven scientifically, things that have data behind them. Nothing wrong with that, by the way, to a certain extent. But if everything has to be tested in that, in that way, if there's no margin for something outside of the natural, the supernatural, the spiritual, that, I mean, that's what faith is, right? Our faith, we are putting our faith in something that we cannot see, something that doesn't necessarily fit into our scientific categories, and trusting that that is still the reality of what is going on. To not have faith is the opposite. I'm not going to put any kind of trust and faith that that there's a reality outside of what, what I can actually see, smell, taste, feel. Faith is seen beyond that and knowing that there is a supernatural world that actually is the reality of what's going on, that includes all the other things, of course. Faith and science aren't enemies of one another. if we understand them the right way. And one of Satan's greatest strategies is to get you to not believe in him. If you've ever read, ever read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, it's been a long time. I actually want to go back and reread them. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fictional kind of account where it's basically letters um, where a, a senior elder demon writes to a junior kind of trainee demon on advice on how to interrupt the faith of the human that he's assigned to. So it's kind of like a behind-the-scenes conversation between these demons, and they're strategizing. And one of, the, one of the pieces of advice that he gives is, listen, when he starts to, to think about Satan and the devil, put in his mind, uh, you know, the little red suit with the horns and the pitchfork kind of thing. Because his enlightened mind will think, I could never believe in that. And if he can't believe in Satan, that will surely lead him to not believe in God as well. That's one of Satan's greatest strategies, is that you would think that he's ridiculous. You just minimize him. That the spiritual world shouldn't be taken seriously. But Jesus actually talked to Satan, right? In the wilderness, Satan comes and he tempts Jesus. Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. 
That should be a warning. Not everybody that knows and can quote the Bible is, is legit. Satan is there to destroy Jesus' mission, to get him off mission. It's important for you to know that Satan this morning hates you and wants nothing more to destroy you. And we think, well, how does he do that? Well, as we see in the very beginning in the, in the, in the, in the Garden of Eden, the first description that's mentioned of, of Satan is that he's subtle. If you notice, there's not a lot of like temples to Satan popping up in our cities. There's not a lot of like people knocking on your door. Hi, can I talk to you about my Lord and Savior Satan this morning? It's a lot more subtle than that. He's not trying to make you a Satan worshiper in, a, in an overt way like that. He's trying to make you a hyper-consumer, an extreme individualist, an enlightened person who thinks that the supernatural is silly. He's trying to get you to be addicted to comfort and security, found in your bank balance or in your position at your job, for you to find your identity in your sexuality or in your gender or in how much influence that you have in the world. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get you to put your hope and your faith in anything, anything but Jesus. And that's why he calls these guys a synagogue of Satan because their hope wasn't in Jesus, and they were persecuting those who were clinging to the name of Jesus, who were putting all their eggs in the Jesus basket. We do live in a, in a world where not everything can be seen. There is a supernatural world. There is a spiritual war going on. Do you remember last week, the advice to Sardis was that they woke up. They woke up, and part of that is waking up to the fact that we are in a spiritual war, that it's not just peacetime, that we are entering into contended spaces. Satan just wants you to be comfortable as a Christian. If he can't get you, then he'll minimize the damage that you can do against him. Just be comfortable, man. Be cool. Enough with all the Jesus talk, dude. We are in a spiritual war. But Jesus promises them vindication. He says, they will learn that I have loved you. Despite your lack of stature, of influence, of nobility, they will be the ones who will see that I have loved you. We are his beloved. Jesus sets his affection on his people, on the elect. And the church will receive what Israel has rejected until Israel receives the Messiah that they rejected. Jesus promises not just vindication, but also their preservation. Notice what he says in verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. And that's just the Christian life. It's not a sprint. It's a lifelong marathon. 
It requires endurance, keeping endurance, steadfastness, immovability, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Our commitment will not be in vain, but is met by a greater commitment. (laughs) This is what I love about the Bible. There's this kind of like, I don't know, paradox to it. We're given these commands, and yet these commands to be faithful are undergirded by God's faithfulness to us, right? So the Bible says, keep yourself in the love of God. We are to make every effort to keep ourselves in the love of God. But then it also says, to him who is able to keep you. That's going to be our benediction today from Jude. He says to work out our salvation. We're to work it out. Not work for, but we're to work it out. But then he actually said it's God who's working in you. Not just to work, but actually to will to work. We are to love him. Why? Because he loved us first. Even our commitment to him is undergirded and met with a greater commitment to us. And we're kept from this hour of trial. Now, we don't have time <laughs> this morning, because I'm trying to close now, to get into all the different um, forms of eschatology. When we come back and do the rest of Revelation, we'll do that, right? Um, but there's a, a few different positions on how kind of the world will end. Um, and you can hold these different positions and still be a good, godly Christian in that. Um, we don't hold these kind of things so dogmatically as we do things like the gospel. Um, some, some people would think that this is referring to some kind of rapture where God removes his people um, so that we're not present during some kind of era of tribulation. So that's kind of a pre-tribulation or pre-millennial kind of position. Um, don't hold that position personally. If you do, that's fine. Um, hold a more amillennial position that this idea of a thousand years is not a literal thousand years, that we are in that now, that we are... Uh, the world is being tried and tested, but that God will keep us, not remove us from, but he will keep us. He will preserve us through this hour of trial. To be kept from the hour of trial has one kind of parallel in the scripture from John seventeen fifteen, right? And Jesus says that he, his prayer was that the father wouldn't remove them from the world, but he would protect them from the danger while they were in the world. We get this example all through scripture the Hebrew boys were saved in the fire, not from the fire. Daniel is saved in the den, not from the den. Israel is saved in Goshen, not, not away from it. This isn't a local affliction, but it's coming to the whole world, to those who dwell on the earth. This, these dwellers of the earth are the unbelievers. It's the focused affliction on the unbelievers. You think of like the plagues in the book of Exodus. So this is a promise of protection, not by removal, but through the sustaining power and through his sustaining presence. And then we get this um, promise of what is coming. The reason that we can endure, the reason that we can hold fast is because he's coming. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. I'm coming. That's present tense. I am. I am coming. Jesus is actually coming back. Can I just confess to you that I don't think about that enough? My hunch is you don't either. 
I get so caught up in the present, so caught up in the now, so caught up in this day or this week or this month or what has to be done that I, I sometimes forget to step back and see the big picture that Jesus is actually going to come back. He's actually going to return. All of, what is, all of his promises are true and will come true. And his visitation, this promise of I am coming, is kind of twofold in, pers- in purpose. One, it's to warn the unbeliever. Right? That, hey, that door is open. Jesus is inviting you to come. Come in through Jesus, in through the open door, into the kingdom of God. But the warning is that that door isn't open forever. Now, today is the day of salvation. Respond today. Don't delay that. You don't know when your life will end. And it will be too late. So it's a warning to the unbeliever. But it's also to warm the believer. That should warm our heart. We can hold fast. We can stand firm on the promises. We can persist in service through Christ's power, drawing strength from the certainty of his bodily presence with us one day. You notice all the churches that are being persecuted, he tells them it's only for a little while. It's only for 10 days. This isn't going to go on forever. It's for a limited amount of time. And one day, all of that will end. One day the persecution will end. The pain will end. Sin and all of its effects, even on nature, will end. I don't know exactly what that means, but I do know it's going to be awesome. (laughs) Imagine our city without the effects of sin on it. What would change in Belfast if all the effects of sin were removed? Just think about that. Just, Just take some time to imagine that. What would change? What would go away? What would appear that isn't here now? What's good but is kind of broken that would need to be repaired and fixed again? What would our economy be like? What would our government be like? We're to hold fast. And then we have the conclusion. Oh, sorry. Hold fast. Why? So that no one may seize your crown. Don't lose your reward. This crown is what you were given. It's a reward for winning the race. Don't let someone snatch that away from you. Don't let Satan take that away from you. Hold fast so that you'll receive that. And then the conclusion. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. The church that remains faithful is granted true security and a new identity. We have the secured position in God's presence. One of the things about Philadelphia that made it... um, a precarious kind of city was it it sat right on a fault line now it was on on like this volcanic plain which produced real rich soil which was great for growing grapes and wine they were known for that but it was demolished by an earthquake in 17 AD and tremors went on for years Um, so this idea that they were kind of on shaky ground if you actually go to Turkey and visit some of these sites a lot of what is left are just the pillars you have just these pillars and everything else is kind of in ruin. It's drawn on this imagery that I'm going to make you like a pillar, but not just a pillar on some temple, not just a pillar in some, but a permanent fixture in the presence of God in the temple. 
The temple was representative um, to the people of God of where his presence would dwell. Here it's not so much a building anymore. Heaven is not heaven just because it's heaven. It's heaven because that's where the presence of God through Christ dwells. And he says, you're going to be my personal possession. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He's going to write the name of his God on you. When you send your kids off to school, one of the first things you do is you write their name on everything, <laughs> right? About in the tags, you write it on everything, in their underwear. Like, you, you put their name on everything because they lose stuff and they take it off. And there's a million different uniforms. They're all the same. Who knows whose is what? So you have to look and see what the name is to know whose it is. That's what God does to his people. He writes his name. He gives you a new name. He writes his name on you. He claims you as his own. Names matter. Names tell you who you are, but they also tell you whose you are. People know my kids, their names. They're the parks. That's who they belong to. They belong to me and my wife. We, we gave them their name. Oftentimes we label ourselves in so many other ways. We label other people, right? Identity is such a big part of our culture at the moment, right? And especially here in this place. What culture, what identity are you a part of? Loyalist, nationalist? Are you Irish? Are you British? Are you confused? Are you European? Are you not European? What about your gender? What about your sex? Is that fluid? Is it static? Is it, we put all these different labels. Or we just label other people. That person's annoying. That person's whatever. Instead of actually seeing it the way that God sees us. Our true identity, our true name, isn't all, the, all those other things are secondary. To who you actually are as Christian. You belong to Christ. And that then should inform the way we wear all these other kind of identities and labels, which should be very loosely, unless they're fixed the way that God... Anyway, we'll get into that later. <laughs> you will have my name. You will have the new Jerusalem's name. You will have Jesus' new name. He claims his church. He identifies himself with his church. He's not ashamed to put a signature on you. May we as his people not be ashamed... Of, of being his. Philadelphia was a loyal church, loved by a loyal Christ. She was faithful in her gospel work. She had faith to obey his word, faithful to be his witness for his glory. May we be that kind of church. May we give ourselves to the holy pursuit of Jesus and his mission, to be faithful to that. And it does require our work but it's our work with his power. It's like mowing the lawn. You go out and you have to do the work, but it's, it's the lawnmower that's really the power of what's going on there. We work in conjunction with the power of God. And so for the Christian this morning, be faithful. Be faithful to the end. Be confident in who Jesus is. 
and who he says you are. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, may today be that day. He's calling you to an open door. It doesn't stay open forever. Respond. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every single person that's lived and has ever lived. The question is when? Before it's too late or after it's too late? When we confess Jesus now and be counted as his people or after the judgment? When we recognize Jesus as who he is for who he is, but we still reject him and spend an eternity separated from him. May today be the day that we all name Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, the comfort of your word to us, the challenge of your word to us. Father, I pray that you would increase our faith, that we would see what we can't see, that you would give us eyes of faith, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to his church. Father, we know that we can't do those things on our own, that you, through your power, through your spirit, have to make dead things alive. And so, God, do that this morning, would you? Give us a desire to know you, maybe for the first time, in any real meaningful kind of way, as your own. And God, for those of us that are yours, would you increase our faith? Would you increase our confidence? May we not throw it away. May we revel in your presence. May we abide with you so that even in the hardest times, even in persecution, Father, what is most important is your presence to us. We ask this in your name.